feel like we have a severe, uh, severe drift uh, towards this way. So I just want to say to like Kirtland's and company, like I see you, I know you're there. I might not talk directly at you very much, but um, I incredibly, I well, it's not that. Uh, I just can't imagine sitting in the sun right now. So good for you guys. You guys are like the hardy ones. Um, so I am going to tend toward this direction. Uh, there's most worldviews, no matter where you're coming from, most worldviews have a general agreement that there's something wrong with the world. You look in the news, uh, the kind of week that we've had, my goodness, the kind of year that we've had, there is a, a pretty unmistakable reality that uh, we live far from, uh, we, we live in a far from perfect world. From a Christian worldview, the most essential thing to understand about what's wrong with the world is, is that it, it primarily rests in, in humanity's responsibility. That as G.K. Chesterton, a great Christian author, and, and uh, he was actually a humorist, whatever that is, I guess like an old school stand-up or something, uh, wrote, there was this in the early 20th century, one of the major uh, papers in London did a whole series of articles with all of these very intelligent people about what was wrong with the world, how we might fix the world. But their first half was just what's wrong with the world. And so, you know, conservatives are wrong with the world, liberals are wrong with the world, whatever it is. And G.K. Chesterton famously wrote in one word as his article, and he said, me. I'm wrong with the world. And that might be the simplest way of articulating what we, as followers of Jesus, as people of, of the scriptures, believe is wrong with the world. We are wrong with the world. What that ends up largely, I realize I have my sunglasses on. That might be weird for some of you. But if I take my sunglasses off, I'm going to end up with a headache. So, um, so I'm not trying to be, like, too cool for school. Um, but I just realized that. Um, that what that experience is like for human beings, you can think of in two ways. One is the fact that we have this keen awareness that we do bad things, that no matter how self-deceived you are, no matter how full of oneself you are, that it was actually Sigmund Freud of all people who said every human being down deep is very aware of what you might call guilt, that you have done bad things, that I have done bad things, that we have hurt people, and therefore not only do we experience the imperfection of the world, but we are complicit in the imperfection of the world. And so there is this massive problem of what do we do with that guilt? What do we do with the bad stuff that we've done that we have a sense that we're accountable for? The other way that we experience this is actually what's being talked a lot about in sort of popular conversation, Brene Brown being sort of kind of the primary prophetess of this, if, if you're familiar with her, her work, is, is the idea of shame. If guilt is I've done bad things, shame is the internal message that I'm bad. That there is something fundamentally flawed about me that makes me unworthy of connection, that makes me unworthy of love, that makes me unworthy of belonging. And again, no matter how 
how self-actualized you are, no matter how much wellness you've tried to do, no matter how much meditation you've tried to do, there is this sense in which one of the things that we most often share, actually someone in our church was just saying this to me, that they always felt so deeply isolated in any community, sometimes especially in Christian community, because they didn't realize that everyone was experiencing what they were. And what they were talking about was shame, that there is this sense of if you only knew who I actually was, you would not draw close to me. And this is a shared experience. And actually, the scriptures don't simply say, no, don't feel guilty and shame. They say a far bolder thing, which is, that is an actual reflection of the true state of your condition. That you are guilty. That that shame, that there's truth behind that shame. That in and of yourself, you are unworthy. Like, welcome to Jacob's Well. Aren't we a feel-good, happy community on a beautiful Sunday morning? What the scriptures go on to say, though, is that there's actually a deeper issue behind guilt and shame. That there's, more, that there's a more essential, more fundamental, more foundational answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? If the answer is me, then the foundational answer to what's wrong with me is that actually all of that is due to the fact that we are disconnected from God. Due to the fact that we were beings created to be in perfect harmony with our creator and that that would cause in us a certain behavior, a certain type of life, a certain obedient responsiveness that now disconnected from God goes in the opposite direction. That we are naturally, instinctually disobedient. So too does the shame that we are unworthy, that we are not uh, lovable, that we do not deserve connection is a reflection at the deepest parts of who we are, that the one that we most were created to belong to, the one that we were most created to connect to, is actually now distant from us. And this is so much of what the book of Hebrews is talking about, is is there any way forward in light of the fact that that is our true condition? What do we do with the guilt and shame that we experience? And more foundationally, is there a way to be reconnected to the one that we're disconnected from, namely God himself? And what Phil just read, which is full of a lot of very theological, very Old Testament-y, very thick legal stuff. It might not have got your adrenaline pumping, uh, but the more I studied it this week, man, the more it got my adrenaline pumping, and I hope by the time we're done here, it does for you, because what the author of Hebrews is first pointing to is he's saying in order to understand God's ultimate solution for these things, first you have to understand the way in which the Old Testament, the old school, the old covenant, means of dealing with these things worked. And if you can understand, call it the inner logic of that Old Testament system, which is the sacrificial system, thus this talk, right, we're in public, people who don't go to our church can hear my voice, and we're going to talk about bloody sacrifices this morning, like kind of weird, right? Um, but it's saying if you can understand the inner logic of that sacrificial system, you will have a far more profound understanding of what it means when Christians say things like, Jesus died for your sins, there's no more fundamental Christian declaration than that. And yet, even for those of us who have followed Jesus for some amount of time, I'm not sure that most of us can articulate exactly what we mean by that. Jesus died for my sins. What does the death of a first century Jewish carpenter 
What does his death have to do with my eternal need, my deepest, most foundational eternal need? How do we put those two things together? That's the journey we're on. We might not get to all of it today, but these next couple chapters in Hebrews are really going to help us understand that. In order to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, there's three essential things you have to understand. The place where this stuff went down, the priests who were responsible for conducting it. If you've been with us for the last couple months, we've talked a lot about the priesthood. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then the sacrifices themselves. Okay, so place, priest, sacrifice. And hopefully as we go through here, you'll, you'll realize, oh, that's basically what this very interestingly worded, uh, superficially confusing passage in Hebrews 9 is about. All right, so listen to these words. You're following along with me, you're going to need to be in your Bibles this morning, okay? You're going to need to be looking at something. It says this, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. In other words, the first covenant had a way of dealing with this stuff, had a way of dealing with this massive problem that God is disconnected from humanity and that guilt and shame stand in the way of that relationship. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Okay, so first, we're talking about a tent. The word here is the Old Testament word tabernacle. Now, if we were in like Hebrews 201, I would ask you, because what's, what's better known, and maybe if, even if you're not very familiar with Christianity or the Bible, what's better known about the sacrificial system is that it happened where? When you think sacrificial system, where did the sacrificial system happen? In the, in the what? The tabernacle is what we're talking about here, but temple. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because the temple comes after the tabernacle, and yet here he's emphasizing the tabernacle as the thing that he wants to talk through. And if we're in 201, I would literally ask you and wait for a response, but I can't hear most of you, um, is why do you think he talks about the tabernacle and not the temple? I'm going to give you like 10 seconds to think about that. Yeah, it's the original, right? It's, it's the original designs that he had. What most commentators agree is, remember that we've been saying that there's this overriding picture that the author of Hebrews is using that he picks up from the Old Testament story to talk about the journey of faith. And it's the journey of God's people in the wilderness. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you if you've been with us for a few months. And we've said that in the wilderness, God, God's people's tendency was to look at all of the hardship and circumstances around them and then to want to go backwards, to want to go back, in their case, to Egypt, to want to go back to the old way of doing things. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you find yourself in exactly the same location. You are in the wilderness. You are between a great work that Jesus has done that we're going to be talking about. And what's out in front of you is the full experience of the rewards of that work. Promised land for his people in the Old Testament. For us, the new heavens and the new earth, however you want to think of that, life beyond death. This world, as beautiful as it is this morning, completely renewed, completely redone. And so the author of Hebrews says, that's where you are. You're in the same location. Now, what he said again and again is, you're in the same location, but you're in a different situation. You have different promises. You have different 
provisions. You have a companion along the way with you. But he wants to maintain this basic story of you got to see yourself as God's people in the wilderness. And did the people in the wilderness have a tabernacle or a temple? Yeah, there you go. They had a tabernacle. They had a mobile temple in so many ways. And so he wants to, in these next couple chapters, if you're wondering, man, why is he talking about because we don't know exactly when this letter is written. There's a chance that the temple is still standing when this letter is written. Why wouldn't he talk about the temple? Well, he's, he's remaining with this overriding story that he wants to see, that he wants us to see ourselves participating in. So a tent was prepared. First section in which were the lampstand, table, bread of the presence. I'm going to jump down to the second half of verse 5. Do you see the end of verse 5? says one of the more interesting verses in the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you could do your devotions on this, but of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm not, I'm going to take the author of Hebrews lead here, not go into massive detail here, but uh, lampstand, table, bread of the presence. These are things uh, in this first section of the tabernacle that represent, as we'll be told in a minute, sort of this world, the, the tree representing the Garden of Eden, representing creation, uh, the bread representing provision in this world, various things of that nature. It's called the holy place. Then behind the second curtain was a second se section called the most holy place. And in there is the golden altar of incense, Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. I'm sure you get all that, right? Like, no, I know you don't. Okay, so let's walk this through. If I had, you know, visuals, I would give you visuals. So basically, there's, I'll do it this way. There's this tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, there's two sections. In the first, then, and there's a, there's a big old curtain. The whole thing is enclosed. So picture like an enclosed tent, uh, not like you have it like a wedding reception, like an enclosed tent. Um, and you go into the first section, and there's certain things that kind of represents the world such as it is. But then there's a second sec section called the most holy place. And there's this giant veil, this, this thicker veil that stands between the first and the second. And the basic idea here is now now check this. this is really important to understand about the tabernacle is that in the most holy place is where God's presence physically rests in the world it's where his feet touch the ground it's called his footstool it's his ottoman it's it's where he actually chooses to plant himself in the world and it's behind this giant veil and is separated from this other room that represents the world such as it is. So there's symbolism here that God's presence is separated from the world in some sense. But I don't want you to hear merely symbolism. Because when, when God's people in the Old Testament say that God's presence dwells in the tabernacle, it dwells in the temple, they mean it literally. It is where one of, the, one of the fundamental ways to think of this problem of our separation from God is that heaven and earth are meant to perfectly overlap. That's what the Garden of Eden was. It was heaven and earth perfectly overlapping. God's presence fully manifest there. People and God face to face. And one of the things that happens because of the fact that we are imperfect, because of our sin and the brokenness of the world, is that heaven and earth are drawn apart from one another. And now heaven is a distinct realm, right? Like you can't see heaven. 
But earth, which we can see, is its own distinct realm. These things are now separated. But in the tabernacle, in that one little teeny tiny space, that most holy place, heaven and earth overlap. What's in that most holy place is a golden altar of incense. Now, incense would be burned. Actually, the incense was burned just outside that room. And it seems like why that was was so that uh, a pleasing odor would sort of go into, right, like it's, like it's ancient Febreze, like heading into the most holy place that would please God because the stench of shame and guilt would potentially pervade there, right? Like the air could still get into there is partially what's going on with the most holy place, but also so that there was a visual as the altar of incense, right? M most of us have been in a room with incense. What does it do? It, it blows smoke all, all around. So you can smell it and there's smoke is that that would fill that most holy place so that if anyone didn't, uh, if anyone did happen to stumble in there, so to speak, that there would still be something veiled between that person experiencing the presence of God. Because here's why we're separated from God. We are separated from God because we are wholly other than what he is. We are something completely different. We are sinful. We are imperfect. We are broken. We are stained by sin. We are impure. We are guilty. We are full of shame. To stand in the presence of that which is all of those things opposite. To stand in the presence of perfect holiness, purity, unbrokenness, undefiledness, is to be utterly undone. Now you say, I, I, I'm not sure that I get that. The simplest illustration, many of you have heard me give it before, is uh, just for like half a, a non-traumatic second, think of the very worst thing you've ever done and think of the person you admire most walking in and finding you doing that in that moment. You can feel, even as you let yourself go there for half a second, you can feel how your, your innards would go, blah, right? You can feel how you would want to run. You can feel how there would be a sense, like the Old Testament Isaiah, who actually stood in the presence of God, f even though the throne room was full of that incense, and he says, I am completely undone. I'm ruined. I'm, I feel my very being being torn apart because I'm in the presence of perfect holiness, and I am a man of uncleanness, is what he says. And so God separating himself, heaven and earth, when God sends people out of the Garden of Eden, it is not because he is petty. It is not because he is this, this just angry, vengeful, sweet, I gotcha, and now you, you have to pay the penalty. It is a gracious thing. He knows it's the only choice now for humanity in the conditions such as they're in. And just think of this. Yes, the tabernacle is a place where God's presence is, is being protected from us and we are protected from it. And yet, the fact that it exists is a marvel. The fact that God chose to at all dwell among his people. The fact that there's anywhere where God's presence would rest in this world is an unbelievably gracious thing and is, and is a reminder that, yes, God is a perfect judge. Yes, God cares about uh, justice and cares about the elimination of sin. But as the Old Testament says in, again and again, he is abounding in steadfast love. Yeah, punishing sin, but abounding, right? There, there is a, there, there, it, these things are an imperfect balance in the character of God according to the Old Testament. Right? Like if he, was, if he was only justice or if he was predominantly justice, his feet wouldn't land anywhere in this world. 
And yet the fact that he chooses to dwell at all is an act of grace. And yet he knows without all of this protection around it, once again, his holy, perfect, pure presence would utterly destroy us. And so do you hear the grace in that? And yet the reality of dealing with sin. Ark of the Covenant uh, is the place where, where God's presence actually rests upon it. Think Indiana Jones for some of you. Uh, Aaron's staff that budded, that's a wild Old Testament story. Tablets of the Covenant, that was what we were talking about last week, is these are the mosaic tablets of the Covenant. Why are these things in this chest? This is like a, a treasure chest that's a reminder of, because the, the primary way that God's people knew him back in the day, and the primary way, if you think about it, that we know him, is by what he's done. The primary way I know you is by your story. The primary way that we know God is by God's story. And so this ark basically houses some of the artifacts from some of the most significant events in God's relationship with his people. Uh, my folks are here this weekend, and they brought me these two enormously uh, big tubs of artifacts from my childhood. And we have had a wild romp going through these, um, and we are slowly whittling them down because most of it is like, why did we keep this, right? But think of it as the Ark of the Covenant is sort of like God's treasure chest from his, it's, it's, a, it's mementos from his faithfulness to his people. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. I love that word, overshadowing. The cherubim, if you see uh, diagrams of the Ark of the Covenant, is their hands are, are kind of like guarding it. Again, all of this symbolism to say what this represents would destroy you unless it was hid from you in some meaningful way. And yet it is what you need most in your life, so it's here. These preparations having thus been made, the priest, now here's our priest. That was the place, here's our priest. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. We're going to talk about this two weeks from now. This is the day of atonement, all of what that means and how that points to Jesus. And not without taking blood, here's mention of the sacrifices, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, or really the first tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, right? Like that was God's old way of relating. That was God's old way of dwelling among his people. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, here we go, the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body, external, superficial things imposed until the time of reformation. That word reformation there is this beautiful word. It's a combination of two words. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's a word for ortho, like orthopedics, right? And what that, that Greek root means is setting something straight, like <coughs> cracked, right? Like you need an adjustment. That's that ortho word. And it's this word for the, the time of orthos, the, the time of putting things right. And so in other words, it's saying that all of this was pointing towards something that was far better than it. And not just better, because listen to the language here. What it says is, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Instead, at the beginning of that verse 9, these are symbolic for something else. And really the word there is, it's a parable of something else. It's a parable in the present time pointing forward to something that's, that's actual. Right? Like when Jesus tells parables, he says the kingdom of God is like 
a sower who goes out and sows seed. And it's like, okay, so the kingdom of God, so the king must be a farmer. Do I have, no, 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 no. It's using images. It's using things that point beyond themselves to actual things. And that's what it's saying, the tabernacle is. It's a parable of something that, that the actual is coming um, in response to. In other words, and this might sound really harsh, but it's what the rest of Hebrews is going to say. That Old Testament sacrificial system actually, ready for this, accomplished nothing. It was merely a parable. It was nothing actual. It wasn't actually doing anything about the actual problem. Because here's the deal, right? God's presence is there. But in order for that veil to be taken away, right, in order for that second place to be open, in order for God's presence to go out, what actually had to change? Did something about God have to change? If you're following along, it's something about us has to change. And it says that all of that stuff, day after day, year after year that was happening, was actually not doing anything about the actual internal issue, right? Because we said, what's wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world. What does the sacrificial system do for me? Nothing is what Hebrews is going to say. Because it didn't, in the language of this passage, it didn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And that conscience is a weird word. We think like Jiminy Cricket. We think like, is this right or wrong? Should I steal this or not? Conscience is a far more rich term biblically. It's talking about one's consciousness of one's actual state. In other words, probably more closely linked to our current idea of shame. It's saying it did nothing about our awareness that something is foundationally wrong with us. It says it couldn't do that. It couldn't change that situation. Because here's what the priest would do. He would take this sacrifice. And, um, and first of all, really simply, we'll talk about this in detail in a couple weeks. But first of all, it would take the guilt of the people and put that guilt on this substitute. A bull, a lamb, a goat, a bird would stand in for your guilt. The bad stuff that you've done would be laid on this animal, and then the animal would be killed in your place. Take your penalty. That's what you deserve. That ultimately, death exists because sin exists. Death exists because we imperfect beings have brought the power of sin and death into the world. And so the penalty for our sin, and don't even think of it as penalty, just think of the natural outworking of our sin is death. Well, this, this substitute would stand in for us. Then what they would do is that they would take the blood from the slaughter and they'd do the weirdest thing, is that they would sprinkle it all over the place. In the, in the holy place, and then once a year in the most holy place. Why? Because the understanding of what that substitute did is that substitute could clear space for, for heaven to actually come into this imperfect world. And so what the blood being sprinkled represented is, think of it like detergent. Think of sin as vandalizing this world. Those of you who have seen the Bible Project video on this, and I couldn't commend it enough, go watch it this week. You'll have better context for the next couple weeks. The Bible Project video on sacrifice and atonement. Watch it. And they say that one of the things that sin does is it vandalizes the world. And what that sprinkling of blood does is like detergent that begins to wash some of it. But even the idea of it sprinkling means this, this can't fully accomplish what it's meant to symbolize. But that blood is, is clearing space. It's washing off. It's purifying. And so by definition, it's creating little, little pockets where maybe heaven could invade earth. You starting to get some of the symbolism here? 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and good there is, is like the most cosmic understatement, of the actual things, of, of the better in the Hebrew sense of, of what was provisional, what was symbolic, what was a parable, is now actually happening in Christ. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, in other words, the tabernacle pointed to profound spiritual realities beyond it. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That's the first thing that he secures for in, in what he did that was actually achieving something. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, this is another wild Old Testament thing that they would do when you've come in contact with death. Uh, you have to sprinkle yourself with the ashes of a heifer, wild stuff. These things can only sanctify for the purification of the flesh. They're all external. They're all superficial. They're all just ritually pure. It just means that you can stay involved in this parable, stay involved in this symbolic means of worship to God. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All of that symbolism, that parable, points beyond itself to the actual work of Jesus. Because here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes your guilt, the bad stuff that you've done, the bad things that you have done, and he invites us to place our hands upon him as our substitute, as our sacrifice, and to stand in the way for us, to suffer what we deserve to suffer because of the bad things that we have done. This is the idea of securing eternal redemption for us. That word redemption there is this beautiful biblical word talking about how we've been freed from an enslavement to this way of life, enslavement to sin, that Christ pays the price to buy us out of that. He pays the price for the guilt that we inevitably feel as people. Now this is where it could get confusing. Because what does it mean that Jesus did that for you, right? Like, how does that, how does that work, right? Like, if you're like me, okay, that's cool. That, that's like a cool visual, me putting my hands on Jesus. But how does that actually work? It works because our guilt, as the scriptures tell us again and again, is most fundamentally against God himself. That we are guilty because, yes, we have sinned against one another, but every sin that we have ever done has at its root the more foundational sin, which is our ultimate rebellion against God. And it is only the person that you have most fundamentally hurt and wounded that can truly forgive you for the guilt that you experience. Do you get how that works? Like if you're... I heard one, uh, someone put it this way once. Like, if you're walking uh, along a you know, steep cliff or something, and you're walking with someone, and they say, do you believe that I love you? And you're like, well, yeah, I, I guess. And they're like, let me show you how much I love you. And they just jump off the cliff. Right? Like, they, and they say, look at me die for you. That would be a very confusing moment. Because what does that communicate? Right? But if you were actually in danger and peril, and you were hanging off the side of a cliff, and someone came and said, do you, do you know that I love you? And you said, well, yeah, if, if you do, you're going to rescue me. And in their rescuing of you, they fell to your death. You would marvel at, my, what great love. 
that person has for me. You see, it's only for you. It's only truly love for you demonstrated if you are actually in a situation of need. That's the first thing to understand. Secondarily though, what we most need for freedom from guilt, think of anything, right? Like if, if you're feeling guilty because of something that you've done from someone else, the only true way out of that, that subjective experience of guilt is for that person to really and truly forgive you. But here's the thing about forgiveness. And so people say, well, then why doesn't God just forgive me? Why didn't he just wave his hand? Why didn't he just get over it? Because here's what's true in every case about forgiveness. Forgiveness always requires suffering. Or maybe more essentially, sin always requires suffering. Because when I harm you, either I now deserve to suffer in judgment for what I have done, or if you choose to absorb that, you're going to be the one who suffers. Do you see that? Make it even simpler than that. If, if, I, um, if you break something that's mine and I forgive you for that, I say it's no big deal. Do you see how I've made a choice to suffer instead of having you suffer? Because if you break what you borrowed from me and I say, no, I don't forgive you, guess what you have to do? You've got to go buy another of whatever you buy, right? You're going to suffer. You're going to lose. It's going to cost you something. But if I say, no, it's no big deal, guess what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to go pay the price for what you broke. I'm going to go have to suffer for, what, for the brokenness that you brought into that relationship. Forgiveness always requires suffering. This is why Jesus suffered for you. This is why he died for you. I don't know all the ramifications of what it means that every sin that you have ever committed has created a kind of relational suffering in the heart of God that in the cross he chose to bear eternally, forever, comprehensively, completely. But that's the message of the gospel. That's the good news of Christian faith is that the choice of who would suffer was made by the one who held zero accountability for the rift in our relationship with him. And so he brings his blood, he brings his own suffering, he brings his death with him on our behalf. The other thing that it says is that how much more will the blood of Christ, verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I'll start at the end there. To serve the living God, keep in mind that forgiveness, that redemption, that all of these things is never an end unto themselves. You see, what forgiveness does, what, what reconciliation with God does, right? Like if I say, uh, if Cynthia and I have a horrible argument and then we reconcile, but we never speak to each other again, we never actually have a relationship again, what, what's the point of that reconciliation? The point of all of this is so that we might have relationship with God and actually live a life of flourishing in obedience to him. That's what we were made for all along. And so he says, all of this is so that you might serve the living God, not as repaying an eternal debt that you could never repay, but as actually entering into life as he always meant it to be. And so all of this is a means. It's not an end unto itself. The end is that we might have relationship with God, that we might thrive in obedience to him. What's necessary for that to happen, though, is that we might be purified in our conscience, that our awareness... Right? Because at the end of the day, what shame so often feels like is this internal, unshakable impurity, uncleanness, dirtiness. Right? We even use dirty language to, to talk about uh, sin in the world, dirty politicians and dirty this and dirty that. And yet all of us probably resonate to some sense where internally we feel this sense of, Ugh, if people only knew, 
It's saying what Jesus did could actually not symbolically, but actually purify that. That what Jesus does is his work is so comprehensive in taking on all of our sin that it really and truly connects us to the relationship we are in and of ourselves least worthy of. And if you are now connected to the relationship you are least worthy of, then shame has to flee. Because the declaration of your worthiness has been made, not because of something within you, but because of what he's done. And here's what it looks like, though, for our consciousness of that to be purified. It means returning to that truth again and again and again. Because every single day, if you're like me, that old voice of shame re-enters my story and says, yeah, but what about this that you just did? But what about that that you did five years ago? Have you really been purified from that? And this is why we can never tire of hearing the gospel that Jesus really and truly took all of it upon him. That he went to the cross for you, took on shame, despising the shame, it says elsewhere in Hebrews. That he saw your shame and he said, I hate that that's true in your life. Not I hate you, I hate that that's true in your life. And I'll take it on me so that I can speak a better word over your life that says worthy, loved, chosen, belong. And yet every day, the enemy will use little lies to say that. And so here's what we need. And this you can think of symbolically, metaphorically. Hear me, anyone who's listening. This is a metaphor, right? We need the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus again and again. This is why Christians sing super weird songs about being washed in the blood. Because we need it. And here's what that blood does. Here's what reminding ourselves that the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all, for all time. It creates space for heaven to invade our stories. It creates space where God can actually dwell in with truth in those lies. It creates space where his voice can speak a better word than the voice of guilt and shame over us. And so we need Jesus again and again. We need these truths. We need scripture. We need teaching over our lives. We need worship music, as simple as that is, in our lives to remind us, no, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is true. And as we do that, our consciousness of our true state begins to shift because the actual reality of your life now is not something you need to fight against. The actual state of your condition is not guilty, is worthy, is belonging. This idea always makes me think of a scene in one of my favorite movies, uh, Blood Diamond. Who's seen Blood Diamond? Anybody seen this? Oh, okay. All right, more than usual when I ask that question. Beautiful scene in Blood Diamond. Uh, it's a story about the, the vicious uh, diamond trade in Africa, and, and the, the main plot line is, um, is a little boy who gets taken into one of these horrible children's armies. And there's a scene toward the end where the father reconnects with this child um, in the midst of this child being part of, of this brutal army, and uh, he encounters him, and, uh, and he thinks, like, everything's fine. Um, we're going back home, and he turns around at one point, and his, his son has a loaded gun pointed at him because the old way of doing things is still in there. The old shame, the old guilt is in there. And the father looks at his son, and he says the most beautiful series of things, and I don't know if it's copyright legal, but like go home and, and watch this, is he says to his boy, first he says his name over him. Then he says, um, you're a good boy. And he says, I know that they've made you do bad things, 
but that doesn't mean that you're bad. Yeah, that's the undoing of the voice of shame. He says, then he says to him, I'm your father who loves you, and your mother waits for you. And he invites him to this new identity. He invites him back into the family. He invites him back into his status no longer being one who has done all of these horrible things and one who feels unworthy of love back into the family that he was created by and for. And eventually tears are streaming down both their faces and eventually the child drops the gun and they embrace. To me, one of my favorite pictures of the way in which the work of Jesus really and truly, not symbolically, not merely through words, but through actual acts, undoes the voice of shame in our lives because there is a father who loves us who says over us, just because you've done bad things doesn't mean you're a bad person unworthy of love. And what I've done means that you can come home. I have pursued you in your worst condition to change your condition forever at ultimate expense to myself. This is the love of God in our lives. Let's pray.